if you came in today and you've been chained up by fear, if those are the things that you've been building your life on, one of the things that we talked about last week in our kingdom series is that what you build your life on will determine the life you have left. Building your life on fear is only going to result in collapse. You don't have to be a slave to fear anymore because you've been invited into God's kingdom and the kingdom of God is for everyone. And so I just want to say to you today, if you have gone through the motions of what we do on a Sunday morning, if you've been worshiping because we come in and we sing songs, if you've closed your eyes and bowed your head to pray because these are the things that we do, but you're not engaging with the Spirit of God who has come to set you free the Spirit of God who has come to deliver a message that the kingdom of God is right now. It is still coming, but it is right now. And if you have not experienced that kind of freedom, I'm just going to invite you. Whatever it is that you came in with that's blocking your spirit today, would you be brave enough to set it aside and lay it down? Because I really believe that God wants to give you new eyes today. The, the title of today's message is Kingdom Vision and that's because from the beginning of the story of Jesus, as, as told to us in Matthew's gospel, that's where we're hanging out in the gospel of Matthew, the good news about Jesus that Matthew told to a group of people. What we've discovered is that when Jesus showed up, he came to turn everything upside down. He walked in and announced that he was king in a very subtle way. He didn't point to himself and say, all bow. He came and he said, no, the kingdom of God is right now. The kingdom of God is at hand, and he was ushering it in. And listen, <clears throat> Israel was excited about a king. They were ready for somebody to come in and turn things over to set what they thought was wrong and make it right. The problem was that everybody's idea of what was right and God's idea of right are very different things. And we've been wrestling for the last couple of weeks trying to understand what the kingdom is and why that even matters to us in the 21st century. What is it to be kingdom people in the technological age that we live in, in the democracy that we live in? And here's the problem. We're trying to reconcile a, an eternal idea with temporary measures. We are temporary citizens of this world and invited to be eternal citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we're trying to reconcile an eternal idea with a temporary circumstance. And every time we talk about it, it makes us uncomfortable. Every time we talk about what it means to be salt and light in the world, to reflect God's glory to people, and as people look at us, for them to see Jesus, man, that's a lot of pressure. What if I can't do that? Every, talk about, every time we talk about building a foundation that gives us a structure that, that won't be shaken even in the midst of storms and trials, that feels like a lot of pressure. What, what if I put the wrong stone in place? To love and be with and forgive people, that's a lot of pressure, especially when God is asking me to love and be with and forgive people I have no desire to be with. And I don't really want to forgive because they've hurt me too bad. As we wrestle with what Jesus is saying, it causes us some uncomfortability because we are looking at it with the wrong set of lenses. What if I told you today 
that you need to change your prescription? What if I told you today that you need to start looking at things differently in order to understand the kingdom of God? Some of you once fell in love. We have a term for those people when they fall in love. We say they wear rose-colored glasses, right? Everything's perfect. It looks beautiful. And then some of you get married, and the lenses come off, and there are whiskers in the sink, and the toilet paper roll is empty, right? And the dishes pile up, and all of the, all of the wooing and the courting that happened during that rose-colored glasses stage suddenly goes, oh, where'd that go? Hmm. <clears throat> and you begin to see with new eyes. But you also begin to see with real eyes. You begin to see the reality of, of what relationship and love looks like. Well, there were a whole group of people that had come to the kingdom, not with rose-colored glasses, but I would say with blinders on. They had a very limited visual view. They could see, but only if it fit inside the box of their vision. And when Jesus came and he began talking about what people of the kingdom look like and what life in the kingdom looks like and what it looks like to build a foundation on Jesus. What he was saying was, it's time to take the blinders off and maybe start looking at the kingdom differently. And so today I want to usher us into a place where as Jesus has finished his teaching, what we know is the Sermon on the Mount where he's been talking about Here's what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And here's what it looks like to act as kingdom people. Here's what it looks like to love in the kingdom. When he finished all of that teaching, Scripture literally says Jesus came down the mountain and then he started doing all the things he had been talking about. One of the things that I love about Jesus is that he doesn't present us with an idea that he doesn't demonstrate. Jesus doesn't give us big, audacious goals that we've got to chase after and then not show us how to do them. No, he models it for us so we have an example to follow. And so as we come back to Matthew's good news this week about Jesus, he literally says that after Jesus has painted all of these incredibly powerful pictures of life in the kingdom, he literally comes right back down the mountain and starts to live out the things that he's been teaching. Jesus went into communities and he found the people that nobody else wanted to love and he started to love them. He looked for people who were sick and lame and blind and mute and untouchable and mentally unstable. And he went to where they were and he engaged with them. In Matthew chapter 8, at the very beginning of this down the mountain ministry, Jesus encounters a leper. Now, without saying too much, let me, let me just paint a picture. The most untouchable of untouchables in Jesus' day were lepers. They weren't sure if it was a disease that literally could be transmitted skin to skin, but nobody touched a leper. In fact, they usually lived in colonies outside the city because their disease was so untouchable and so clean they were disowned from their families and disowned from society. And Matthew tells us that a leper came to find Jesus. Like, he's just barely coming down off the mountain, and here comes a man who believes that Jesus can heal him. He says, I, I know you're capable of this. 
The question is, will you do it? And Jesus healed them. But if you take a closer look at Matthew, you see it's not so much the fact that Jesus did heal him, but it's how he healed him. He didn't look at the man and say, be healed. Now, Scripture says literally Jesus reached out and touched him. Jesus did the thing that nobody else would dare do. Jesus reached out and he put his hand on the man. And he spoke healing over him. But he demonstrated something powerful in that action. Yes, healing is powerful. When we're sick, we want God to reach down and bring healing to our bodies. But friends, don't miss the powerful message underneath the miracle. Yes, Jesus healed a leper. This horrible skin disease was suddenly healed. Instantaneously, the man was healed. But it's how the healing came. Because when Jesus reached out and touched the man, you know what he did for him? He didn't just heal his leprosy. He healed the social dilemma the man was facing. Because here's the thing. If you're a leper and you suddenly decide to show up in a community that's rejected you and you say, well, I'm healed now, everybody's going to look at you and go, yeah, right, leave town. We know about you. Where is there evidence of the healing? He might roll up his sleeve to try and make the case, but people have known this man as a leper his whole life. But when Jesus reaches out and touches him, he restores social acceptance to this man. He invites him back into community by placing his hand on him. He is with. He chooses to be with and to love a man that nobody else loved. Read on a little more in Matthew's gospel at the beginning of chapter 9. <clears throat> there is a man who is brought to Jesus who's paralyzed. His friends show up with him on a stretcher. And the man came for physical healing. His friends said, listen, we know what Jesus can do. We're going to bring this man to you. But I want you to notice the original reason the man came. Some people brought to Jesus a paralyzed man on a mat. And yet seeing their faith, Jesus says to the paralyzed man, be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. Say what? Wait, didn't they bring him for physical healing? Jesus looks at this man and he goes, I, I know what you think you need, but I also know what you need. Jesus understood that the, the man's need to be in right relationship with the father was more important than if his body was in the right condition. And so he looks at the man in love and forgives him. Now, if you read on in that story, you'll discover that the Pharisees were aghast you know, the opponents of Jesus who didn't like anything he taught. They didn't like any of the ways that he was behaving because they were living with blinders on. They look at Jesus and they're like, who do you think you are forgiving this man of his sins? Like, you've got some authority to do that. And Jesus is like, man, take off your glasses. Take off your blinders. You don't see that what's going on here is more important then your rules and your regulations, you have decided that all I'm really capable of, and you're not even sure this is true, is that I have the authority to heal the man, but not to heal the man's heart, only to heal the man's body. And then Jesus says, but just so you know, I can do both. And he commands the man to pick up his mat and walk. See, when Jesus started engaging in ministry, 
He didn't come just to do miraculous works so that we would ooh and ah and suddenly go, maybe this amazing man has all the answers. No, Jesus began to demonstrate what it was like to be a person of the kingdom, to touch the untouchables, to go where no one would go, to forgive when forgiveness was needed, even if it wasn't understood. Jesus was living out, love be with forgive, as soon as he came down the mountain. And Jesus spent his time with people that nobody else would spend time with. Jesus had a meal one night with Matthew and a bunch of his friends. Matthew had invited Jesus to dinner in his home, and, and Scripture says that there were other dinner guests there, some tax collectors and some disreputable sinners. And the Pharisees saw what was going on, and so they pulled Jesus' disciples aside, and they're like, literally, Scripture says, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Now, if I didn't hear the question and I didn't know I was being labeled, it would probably be hard for me to be offended. But these people at the table already knew what everybody else thought of them. They'd been hearing labels their whole life. And Matt, Matthew, a man whom Jesus had just called to follow him, Matthew, a tax collector who nobody liked anyway, brought all of his friends to the table who were just like him and said, Jesus, would you, would you come to dinner at my house? I want to invite some friends. And Jesus was like, absolutely bring them on. And the Pharisees went, wait a minute. <clears throat> Something isn't right about this picture. You don't understand. These people are unclean. These are the people that we don't hang out with. Your teacher has a wrong idea. And then Matthew tells us something that's one of my favorite pieces of who Jesus is. Because Jesus responds to the Pharisees' judgment with a challenge that I believe that will guide all of us as we start to seek to live on a kingdom foundation and see with kingdom eyes. So Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 12. When Jesus had heard this, okay, they didn't ask Jesus, they asked the disciples. But Jesus heard the question and so he intercedes. When Jesus had heard this, he said to them, meaning the Pharisees, well, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he added these words. Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. And then Jesus concludes his response to the Pharisee with these words. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This is the word of God for God's people. And today I am exceedingly thankful for it. See, the Pharisees hadn't asked their question to Jesus. They hadn't criticized him to his face. But he answered them personally nonetheless. And his answer was sharp. His answer was cutting. His answer was uncomfortable. Jesus looks at them and says, I want you to see something more important than what you're seeing. You see this external behavior, but you're not seeing with kingdom vision. You're seeing with blinders on. See, you see that there are rules to be kept. You see that there are behaviors that you should exhibit, but you've missed the heart behind my motivation. You're not looking at why I'm doing what I'm doing, 
All you're looking is at what I'm doing. And you've determined because you think you know what's right and what's wrong that I've missed the moment. And Jesus came to tell them, actually, you're the ones that are blind. You don't see what's happening at all. You won't get what I'm doing, Jesus says, because you already think you know what you're doing. But see, the Father sent me. I have come for the people who have no idea what to do at all. Why would Jesus decide to sit around a table with people who already knew what to do? He came for the people who didn't have a clue. And he looks at the Pharisees and says, you're spending all your time telling all of the people who already know what to do how to do it instead of finding the people that don't know at all and making sure that they know too. Once more, Jesus is reiterating a kingdom principle that he had been teaching during the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of God is for everybody. It's just not the way we expected it to be. There's no one excluded from the kingdom of God, according to the king. If you're a tax collector, if you're a disreputable sinner, if you're a fisherman with a bad attitude, everybody gets in. There's not a, a list of people who make it and a list of people who don't. There's no one excluded. And this totally flew in the face of the Pharisees' teaching because their idea was that only the righteous got in. And here's the truth. God does desire righteousness. But the Pharisees' idea of righteousness was cloaked in perfection and pride and power. And all of those were complete opposites to the humbleness and the meekness, to the poverty of spirit that Jesus had just been talking about. They cared too much about the externals and weren't paying attention to the internals. So, because they had decided to look at the kingdom through very specific lenses, or better yet, with blinders on, they couldn't see people the way that Jesus saw them. So they wouldn't engage with people the way that Jesus did. And then, and I, th I think this is pretty audacious. I, I don't think we should be surprised that Jesus was audacious, but I, I want you to think for a minute about how gutsy this really is. Jesus looks at his opponents, the Pharisees, the primo teachers of the day, right? These were the guys that knew how to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and told everybody else how to do it. Jesus looks at them and says, oh, by the way, I want you to go back and recheck your scripture. How about you go and learn something you've been teaching people? What he basically says is you need to check your references. I want you to go back and look again at this principle that you've been teaching because I think you might have missed something. Jesus says, I want you to re-examine these words. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifices. What he was saying is, you've been building your foundation, friends, on something that doesn't ring true with God's heart for the kingdom. You care so much about how people behave that you've forgotten to show compassion because they don't know they shouldn't behave that way. You're so wrapped up in how people act in front of you that you've forgotten to look at the heart of the people who are acting that way and maybe consider that they don't know better. Or maybe they're so broken and they're so hurt they've stopped caring because they think no one cares about them and they've done too much wrong to ever make it right.
Go back and reread the scripture, Jesus says. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. He looks at them and says, hey, hey guys, I really don't want a fake faith. I want genuine compassion. Talk about an uncomfortable social moment. When Jesus stands in front of the teachers of the day and says, if you're going to do your job, how about you do it right? Go back and check the scriptures and see what you've been teaching and see if it aligns with the heart of the Father. Because Jesus was drawing on an Old Testament prophecy from Hosea where God had been speaking to both Israel and Judah and say, hey, look, I see the show. I see you say, oh, God, we love you. Oh, God, we, we're, we're for you, we're with you. And you put the act on the outside. But you're treating people like dirt. And so you can, you can shine it up all you want to. You can act in such a way that tries to convince me that you really care. But all I see you doing is the ritual stuff. And there's no relationship behind the heart of what is happening. In... Old Testament times, even in Jesus' day, sacrifices represented religious rituals that had been designed to help people strengthen their relationship with God. That's why they were instituted. It's why God gave his people the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It's why we were introduced to baptism and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. These were things that we could do to help deepen and strengthen our relationship with God. But religious practices, hold on to this, Religious practices are only helpful when they're carried out with an attitude of love for and obedience to God. He is not impressed with a show when there's nothing to show for it. God is not impressed with a show when there's nothing else to show for it. I can check all the boxes. I can engage in all the rituals. But if the relationship isn't there, then the rituals don't mean anything. Maintaining this external impression of religion doesn't matter as much as multiplying internal expressions of love. Jesus was saying, look, I get that you know how to do the sacrifices. I get that you come to the temple. I get that you're checking all the boxes. But there's no internal relationship with the Father. You're so busy looking right, that you forgot to look to him. You're looking at how you can show up and show out in front of everybody on the outside. And on the inside, you're dying because you've missed what matters most. The Lord once said to the prophet Samuel as he was searching for a new king, don't pay attention to what's on the outside because man looks at the outward appearance, but God is looking at your heart somewhere along the line. The Pharisees and so many people who were absorbed in the letter of the law had lost sight of what God was looking at. They'd lost their kingdom vision and they only cared about managing impressions instead of ministering to individuals. Jesus' use of the mercy language with the Pharisees goes right back. It's a flashback to the moment in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He has said, listen, if you want to live a joyful life, if you want to experience contentment in the kingdom, be a person of mercy. Because one day in your life, somebody showed you mercy. So be the person who doesn't hoard it, but extends it. 
Because the more you give, the more you will find there is to give from. But it also was a part of the way that Jesus lived his life. If you read the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end, it's a repeated theme over and over that Jesus experienced this deep level of empathetic mercy on the inside. The first time that we see it is in Matthew chapter 9. He's come down the mountain. He's been ministering. And then Matthew says, So Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of the area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word that is used to describe the emotion that Jesus felt when he looked at people to have compassion on them is a a really fun Greek word to say, splanknitsomai, but you know it means from the spleen? It literally means in his guts. When Jesus looked at people who were lost and hurting and broken and helpless and wandering around and having heard their whole lives they would never be good enough for the kingdom of God, when he looked at them, it broke his heart. And from the very depths of his insides, he felt compassion. It was an empathy that was guttural. He looked at them and he saw them with eyes of compassion and understanding. As Jesus looked outward toward other people, there was an inward response of merciful compassion. It wasn't, oh, poor Charlie. It wasn't this patronizing kind of pity for people. No, Jesus felt it because it was personal to him, because every single person was valued by Jesus because the kingdom of God is for everyone. Even as Jesus looked at the Pharisees who were so sure they had it right, I believe that even despite their bold and sometimes obnoxious engagement with him. I believe Jesus even had compassion on the Pharisees because he knew they were so convinced that they were so right that they would never be willing to listen to maybe the fact that they had it wrong. Jesus had compassion on people. Unlike the Pharisees who were so focused on outward appearances to maintain their righteousness and not concerned about other people, Jesus was focusing on the external needs of others because he had an internal relationship with the Father. He could see what was in front of him. And out of his own contentment and peace and the mercy that God was growing within him, he could reach out and begin to minister to people. And it created an awkwardness socially for the teachers of the day who had nothing to do with people like that. And Jesus was not private about his compassion. He didn't go to people in private and minister to them where it wasn't evident. No, when I said that Jesus set an example, he did it publicly. He demonstrated for all of us what it really looked like to be compassionate, to show mercy and kindness. He made it public. When he would look at people who were wandering around, who were helpless, who didn't have any guidance, didn't have any understanding, or maybe they were angry, Scripture says that Jesus, looking upon all the crowds and experiencing that compassion, now looks at his disciples and says, 
The harvest field is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his field. See, here's the thing. Jesus, son of God, fully God and fully man, was out and ministering to people one by one. But you know what happens when one person does all the work? How much are you going to get done? A little bit at a time. You know what happens when you empower other people to do the work with you? A whole lot gets done a lot more quickly. Jesus said, look, look at all these people who need to know love, who need to know compassion, who need someone to be with them, who need someone to speak forgiveness to them. There are so many. Let's go find more workers. Ask the Father to send more people to love and be with and forgive. Ask God to send more kingdom people to the people who don't know they're yet a part of the kingdom. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the fact that if God had a wallet, everybody's picture would be in it. But there are a whole lot of people who don't know that their picture is in God's wallet. You think about that for a minute? It might make you uncomfortable because there's probably some people in your life that you're thinking about right now that you wish that weren't in his wallet. Can we just be honest? Some people that have hurt you or hurt people that you love or people in your own humanity you think don't deserve it, their pictures are there because everybody is welcome in the kingdom of God. The problem is there are a whole lot of people whose pictures are in God's wallet who don't know their pictures are in there. When Jesus looks out at the crowd, he knows that there are people who don't know they're welcome in the kingdom. And he says to his disciples, let's go find more people. Let's go find somebody else who can, who can go with us and tell people they are a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus understood it's not just enough to know that the kingdom of God is for everyone. It's imperative. It is imperative that other people carry kingdom vision to the people who need to know it's for them. It is imperative that the promise of welcome in the kingdom is taken to people who don't know they're welcome in the kingdom. Jesus came not to just usher in the kingdom of God with its upside-down vision, but also to empower other people to see like these and then do likewise. After encouraging the disciples to pray that God would send more workers, Matthew tells us, I love that, I love that Jesus said this. He's like, guys, we got to start praying. We've got to start asking God for more people to send out into the harvest field. Okay, Jesus. And they start praying and then he taps them on the shoulder and he goes, you're going to go. Yeah, I know you're praying, and you keep praying because you're going to find out real quick. Twelve people can get some stuff done, but more people can get more stuff done. But Jesus says, let's pray that God will send more people. And then he says, but while you're praying, you go. You go out into the harvest field. And Matthew says, beginning in chapter 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples together, and he gave them the authority. He gave them his authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. And Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or Samaritans, but to the people of Israel who are God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Go first 
right now. Just go to the people who already know that there's a new king coming and tell them the kingdom is right now. It's at hand. It's right here in front of you. And as you go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those who have leprosy and cast out demons. And then he, he couches all of that with these words, give freely as you have freely received. As you go out into the harvest field and you tell people, hey, your picture's in God's wallet. You're a part of the kingdom. Give freely as you have freely received. Remember when I called you, there was no cost. I just said, come follow me and I'll teach you how to fish for people. Remember, Matthew, when I came to you as the tax collector, I didn't say, hey, I need some money if you want to follow me. I just said, leave it behind and come with me. And so Jesus gathers these 12 and he says, I need you to go because the harvest is full and there are not enough people. So pray for more people and oh, while you're praying for them, get out there and do some things. Jesus sends those with kingdom vision to give new sight to the people who cannot see. Why did he send the disciples? He said, pray for more workers. Now go out and do some things. Because he knew that the disciples were developing kingdom vision. They'd heard him talk about what it looks like to live in the kingdom. They'd heard him talk about the purpose of the kingdom. They'd heard him talk about how to build a solid foundation underneath them. And then he said, now that you're developing kingdom eyes, go out there and give them to somebody else. Go show them what the kingdom looks like. Don't just tell them, demonstrate it. Reach out and touch the untouchables. Go express forgiveness and grace to people who need it and don't hoard it. Freely give as you have freely received. Take all the things that you've just learned and now go apply them. Go do something. Remember Jesus said, anyone who hears my teaching and applies it is like a man who has built his house on a bedrock. Don't just listen to everything I've said and go, well, that's kind of cool. And then sit back and wait for something to happen. Go do it. Here's the amazing thing. The message that they were sent out with, the kingdom of heaven is near, it's at hand. To channel Heidi Klum from Project Runway, you're not out, you're in. Go tell them you're in, you're not out. Go tell them it's right now. Go tell them that what they've been looking for is right here. It just might not look like they expected. And then show them how to see it. Demonstrate it. Reach out and touch the people who nobody will touch anymore. Welcome them back into community. Go be with somebody who's been isolated because they're sick or lonely or hurting or broken or maybe not right enough. Go forgive sins in the name of Jesus. The message of Jesus through the disciples was that where people were welcome in the kingdom of God just the way they were. He wanted them to see that their picture was in the Father's wallet. Some 2,000 years later, the message is still the same. You're welcome in God's kingdom just the way you are. Broken, hurting, sick, untouchable, You're welcome. But here's the thing. The truth is that most of you already know that. 
The truth is that most of you in the room already know that you're welcome just the way you are. The larger concern, to be honest, our larger concern should be the people that don't. I care deeply as a shepherd about all of the people who are a part of this flock, but I have a burning in my spirit for the people in this community who don't. There are people living next door to us that don't know that their picture is in his wallet. And 2,000 years after Jesus walked this earth, his passion for us is still the same. Go tell somebody. I've given you eyes to see what the kingdom is like. Now stop dreaming about your version of the kingdom. Go live into my version of the kingdom. The spoiler alert I shared with you a couple weeks ago the great commission of Jesus to all his disciples that comes at the end of Matthew's good news applies not only to the people who first received it, go and make disciples, but it also applies to us. We have to go and make disciples, but we need to do it the way that Jesus did it. And I say that today because many Christians are about the business of making disciples, but my question is, disciples of who? Are they disciples of Jesus' idea of the kingdom? Are they disciples of Jesus? Are they disciples of me because they're modeling their faith after mine? And I ask that question because I think it's a critical one for the church. Do we want people to follow our version of the faith or do we want people to follow Jesus? Before you say, well, they're the same in my life, I would offer that there are some popular and public versions of being Christian, lists of to-dos that we've sort of made for people who are trying to make sure they're in. We, like the Pharisees, have developed some holy habits, but sometimes our religion is devoid of relationship. Like we listen to Caleb, we vote with a particular party, we eat at Chick-fil-A and shop at Hobby Lobby, because that's those are things that Jesus people do. But our bumper stickers and our Bible studies have been hallmarks of our place in the kingdom. And our rituals in some way have started to equate to our righteousness. And I think that there are a slew of people who are looking at some of us who confess Christ and can't reconcile what they see us do part of the time with the way they see us live the rest of the time. Because it doesn't look anything like the way that Jesus lived when he was here. And if we say we follow him, and yet we're going the opposite way, then what kind of message are we sending? Because here's the thing, friends, habits aren't enough. Habits and certain behaviors are not enough. Our hearts need to hurt with those who hurt and rejoice with those who rejoice. And our religious rituals cannot substitute for an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus invites his followers to see that what true hallmarks of the kingdom are really about, what holiness really looks like, is loving your neighbor and your enemy. It's like having mercy for people who have desperate need. Maybe even having mercy on people whose need's not so desperate. About forgiving people in, even when we don't want to. Jesus invited us to feel the compassion that he felt. 
when we look at the people around us, his desire is that our heart is so shaped by our relationship with the Father that when we see people who are lost and hurting and, as Jesus said, wandering like sheep without a shepherd, something happens inside. We feel something we've not felt before, and then we have to do something with that feeling. But the question is, how do you reconcile what you're actually feeling inside with the compassion that we're called to display? How do we react when we see people who are broken and hurting and confused and helpless? And more importantly, to whom do we assign those labels and whom do we ignore? Because it's real convenient to find a select group of people that it feels safe to care for and say, well, that person's broken, so I'm going to pour into that life. Because we can still isolate a whole group of broken people because some broken people are easier to hang out with than others. Amen or ouch. If the kingdom of God really is for everyone, then to have kingdom vision means that we see people like he sees them and we love them like he loves them. Let me say that again. To have a kingdom vision means that we see people, not some people, not the convenient people, not the people that are easiest to love, but to see all people the way that Jesus saw them and then love them like he loved them. It means that when we look at people, we feel compassion in our guts. And then we find ways to reach out to people who nobody cares about and value them and love them and demonstrate what the kingdom of God is really like. Not only is Jesus' kingdom teaching in contrast with the leaders of his day, but it is in contrast with the law and the rule of our day. This is not the way that people around us do it. Because it's just too messy. Just too tough. It's just too awkward. It's too hard. And if it's going to be this hard, then maybe I don't want to do it. And I want to say really quick, it would be super easy to dismiss our responsibility to this kind of radical love because we say we don't have the same power. I can't go out and heal people. I can't go out and cast out evil spirits in Jesus' name. But I do want to say this. When we bring love and mercy into the realm of hurt and pain, healing and freedom are possible in Jesus' name. That was wimpy, y'all. I'm not kidding. I want you to sit with this reality for just a minute. When you bring love and mercy into the space where hurt and pain exist, healing and freedom are possible in the name of Jesus. Amen. But the question is, are you going to take it or not? It's easy to sit back and say, well, that's, that's her job. That's his job. But when Jesus invited you into the kingdom and he said, start praying for workers for this huge harvest field, he made it your job. It belongs to all of us, not just to speak healing. Jesus could have healed that leper with a word, but he reached out and he touched him. Jesus could have met the physical need of the paralytic man, 
But instead, he saw the need for forgiveness and he spoke it over him. Jesus got in the messy places where all the people around him went, that's weird. That's not how you do things. And Jesus was like, maybe it is. Sometimes we've got to break bread not just with the people that we know, but the people that we don't. Because that's exactly who Jesus came for. As I close today, I would just offer you these words as a prayer. It's become my prayer for the church. It's become my prayer for me. It becomes my prayer for you. And it is an echo of the prayer of Jesus and the invitation of God to all of us. That the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So I will pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. Only you can be the one to answer the question, who are you in the crowd? And what is Jesus asking you to do? Maybe you can stand up and say, I'll pray. I'll pray for more workers. But when you do, don't be surprised if Jesus taps you on the shoulder and says, okay, go. Thanks for praying. Keep praying while you go, but go do something. Because the harvest is plenty. But the workers are few. And if you're not sure of that, let me just tell you that there's some 25 churches in Mount Carmel, some 7,000 people. But most of the people in our city don't have a home, don't have a faith home. When churches are coming into our city from other cities to plant churches here, to plant a work of the kingdom of God in our midst, it makes me ask, what are we doing? Because we're already here. And so I am praying and I invite you to pray with me this morning and as the days go by, but also to be willing to answer the question. God send workers, but then ask him, are you sending me? And when he says yes, to be willing to get up and go do something. Let's pray this morning. The harvest is plenty, Lord. It doesn't take long to walk around our city and see it. It doesn't take a quarter of a mile to see people who are broken and hurting, alone, rejected, messed up, wandering around helpless and confused like a sheep without a shepherd. And yet there is not one person in the city of Mount Carmel whose picture isn't in your wallet. And we should care. Oh God, we should care. So it's one thing for us to to be gathered together and pray, God, send more workers. Send more workers is not build more churches. Send more workers is let the church be the church. God, we're here. And we can pray and we can ask you to send more people. But the beckoning call is that you're already sending us. And we've got to do something. 
We've got to take the kingdom eyes that you're giving us, even if, even if it's awkward while our vision is transitioning, even while the blinders come off. God, to take a vision of a kingdom that people have never seen to them so that they can discover that the kingdom of God invites something more than they've ever had before. We can't wait around and make that somebody else's job. It's ours. So God, my prayer this morning is that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. That we would be people not of ritual, religion, but of relationship. And the more that you grow our heart, the fuller it becomes. So that when our heart breaks, it breaks big. And then it prompts us to do something. Oh God, give us eyes to see people like you see them so we can love them like you love them. It is a scary prayer to pray. But at the same time, God, I don't want to be praying anything else. I'm responsible for the people in this sphere of influence that you have given me to make sure that they know that their picture is in your wallet. God, may the burden fall on all of us to carry the kingdom vision out into the world around us, that we might have compassion on the people that we see and we might love them into the kingdom of God. And all God's people pray. Amen. Would you stand?